the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, OnScript listeners. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I'm a host of OnScript along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. I want to start with a very special announcement about something that's brewing at OnScript and to ask for your help. Over the past few months, I've been working behind the scenes with some really fantastic people to develop a spin-off podcast called The Biblical World. This new podcast is going to focus on the history, archaeology, and cultures of the Bible, and it's going to be hosted by scholars who are archaeologists themselves or who focus at a deep level on the, the context of Scripture. I'm really excited about this uh, new OnScript podcast to launch. Uh, We already have about 10 to 15 episodes recorded and hope to bring this to you very soon. The regular OnScript podcast will continue as is. Your subscription to OnScript on your feed won't change, but there'll be a new one called The Biblical World that you can subscribe to. And we'd really love your support for this, especially from those of you with an interest in the world of the Bible. First of all, stay tuned for more information and share the word when the podcast releases, hopefully this May. Second, we could use your financial support to help get this off the ground. There are all sorts of hidden costs to podcasting that really stack up. If you could help, even just for a little bit, you can do so through onscript.study forward slash donate, and we'd really appreciate that. Most of all, just enjoy the podcast, including this great discussion on the Bible and Borders with Danny Carroll, hosted by the inimitable Aaron Heim. Thanks for listening. Richard Wright, in a poem in his 1945 work, Black Boy, writes, I was leaving the South to fling myself into the unknown. I was taking a part of the South to transplant in alien soil, to see if it could grow differently, if it could drink of new and cool rains, bend in strange winds, and respond to the warmth of other suns, and perhaps to bloom. Wright's poem is his reflection on the great migration of African Americans from the rural South to the urban North. But the sentiment of his words is one that every immigrant would recognize. Immigration brings an acute awareness of our connections to land, to place, things we take for granted when we uproot ourselves, until we uproot ourselves and transplant ourselves, and then attempt to bloom in foreign soil. Onscript listeners, this is Aaron Heim coming to you from Oxford, England, and our guest today, Dr. M. Daniel Carroll Rodas argues in his book, The Bible and Borders, Hearing God's Word on Immigration, that migration forms an important undercurrent that flows throughout scripture and is central to our Christian faith. Because in his words, our God is a migrant God. Danny, I'm so glad that you could join us today, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Welcome to OnScript. Well, thanks, Aaron. It's, it's good to be with you, and we go way back, so that makes it extra special. So thanks. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Uh, Danny, the opening words of your acknowledgement, um, 
of your acknowledgements are this book has been percolating in my heart and my mind for some time. So I appreciate the coffee reference, first of all. Um, but, you know, that that percolation comes through in so many places in this book. So I thought it might be helpful just to begin by asking if you could give us a glimpse into this book's journey from your heart to the pages. Well, I share your addiction uh, with coffee. So uh, thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, it actually is part of my life story. My mother was a Guatemalan immigrant, uh, married a, you know, a U.S. citizen. And so we were raised bilingual and bicultural. Uh, we grew up in Houston, Texas in the U.S. And, uh, but we, I, I, we never processed it. I mean, uh, it was just part of who we were. Our friends in Houston, our Latin friends, were uh, Cuban. And so it was that Spanish-speaking Cuban world as well. In fact, my brother actually married a, a Cuban uh, in Houston. And then uh, I would spend almost every summer growing up in Guatemala. And then later on as an adult, I went to teach there for 13 years. So this, this part of my Latino identity is part of, of who I am, very deep. Um, so when we come back to the U.S., this would have been mid to late 90s, is when I, I encountered the topic for the first time. And there's all kinds of stories behind that. But uh, the way it actually started on the ground was there was a Peruvian pastor in one of my survey classes, and he started nagging me about starting something in Spanish. And um, so eventually we did, and so it was a Spanish-speaking kind of lay, basic Bible theology. We'd meet uh, one Saturday a month for that first year, Saturday morning, and uh, there was uh, people from, from three different churches. And eventually I would begin to attend one of them, Iglesia del Camino. And I became part of the, uh, the Latin or the Hispanic, um, ministerial alliance, the Alianza Ministerial Hispana. And so that was my, my, my real engagement with, with immigrants because, uh, in the churches in the Denver area, the church I was attending was 95% undocumented. So now, instead of being just kind of a, a vague political discussion, it was people I knew, uh, people I went to church with. Uh, I would visit other churches and engage in conversations. And so that's the kind of the personal side, just wondering. And then I'd get in these conversations uh, with colleagues and other friends and Christians. And this would have been maybe in the mid uh, 2000s, like 2005, 2006. And uh, I didn't hear anything Christian about it. And so they might tag a verse on at the end or something. Uh, but there were other things driving the conversation. And I was realizing that what was driving the conversation were really political commitments, above all else. Uh, and natural concerns that any country has, even in the UK where you are, about culture and um, politics and healthcare and security and jobs and education. I mean, those are the natural things that any country in the world is dealing with. So that's how I got into it. Uh, so driven by the personal interaction piece uh, and then just finding a world in the Bible that I didn't know anything about and didn't realize just how extensive it was. So uh, I have this book, but I've done others as well. So, um, yeah, so I've been kind of chewing on this now for about 14 years. So it's been a while. I do a lot of traveling and speaking uh, and other writing. Uh, on the topic. Yeah, thanks. I, and I, I think it's it's important if you've read, um, perhaps you've read Danny's earlier book, I think there is um, 
you could, I, I felt like I could see you evolve in this book in some ways, um, nuance the discussion. So I think even if you've read his, um, his older book, is it um, Christians at the Border? Am I, am I remembering the title right? I'm terrible yeah, with titles. Yeah, Christians at the Border. Um, I think this is still, this is, this is a, a, a look just at the Bible, and I think that's really helpful. To introduce Danny a little more fully for those of you who might not know his work, um, Danny was recently appointed to the Scripture Press Ministries Chair of Biblical Studies and Pedagogy at Wheaton College, where he was previously a Blanchard Professor of Old Testament. Prior to his time at Wheaton, he taught for many years at Denver Seminary, where he was my professor, and then at El Seminario Teológico um, Centroamericano, Ceteca, uh, which he just spoke about. And he's written uh, a number of books, chief among them his new commentary on Amos and the New International Commentary on the Old Testament series, and that was just re- re- released this past November. Um, it's on my list of things to buy this year, so picking that up. Um, and on a personal note, and I hope this doesn't embarrass Danny too much by saying it, um, Danny's scholarship and teaching and friendship has had a tremendous impact on my own scholarship and on my own faith, probably more than pretty much any other person. So I'm really delighted um, just that our Unscript listeners will get to glimpse some of that in this interview. Well, thanks for those kind words. You are one of my favorite students too. I've got to say that now, right? But, <laughs> but no, no, no. You, you, it's been it's been fun to watch your trajectory, you and Peter. Oh, thanks. Yeah, Peter's my so, husband. Yeah, and being yeah, being in your home and being around your kids and stuff like that's been great. So. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. been it's some fun memories there. Let's jump into the book. You have a number of first things that you think are really important to clarify in this discussion on the Bible and immigration. So what key concepts and terms do we need to understand uh, before we get too deep into the weeds? And um, are, and are there, uh, I guess, conversely, are there pitfalls that you think we need to avoid? Yeah, I think the, the key is where to begin the discussion. And oftentimes, if one is within uh, certain evangelical circles, they'll go to Romans 13 and begin the discussion on the issue of legality and national problems, uh, which are obvious, especially these days uh, in the U.S. Um, but what I what I argue for uh, in this book and other places is that we should begin, you know, not you know a thousand pages into the Bible, but let's begin on page one. And so the whole image of God piece, I think, is crucial to orienting the discussion, not only in terms of its content, but because of its tone. And the other thing that I would, so we can talk about that, but uh, the other thing, too, is even when people look at the Old Testament and they go, oh, but we're New Testament, oh, you know, uh, we're past that, uh, New Covenant, uh, all this kind of stuff, which there is there is something to that, but... I think if we begin to connect concern for the immigrant to God's concern for vulnerable people, I think that's key. And in the Old Testament, these come in four categories, right? The widow, the orphan, the poor, and then the fourth one is the immigrant, uh, as needy, vulnerable people. And all those things kind of carry into the New Testament as well. So it's not that we're imitating the Old Testament, we're, we're just continuing the trajectory of concern. And I think that's an important distinction uh, that we need to realize. And the Bible, the Old Testament, is very clear that love of the foreigner actually uh, 
is something that God does and he expects his people to as well. And we can unpack all those things. But those are the, I think, two of the main things that I would say. What is your starting point? And how do you frame the discussion in terms of vulnerability? Hmm. Yeah, I think... I think the Romans 13 question is, is it, is an important one, not just what it means and where it says, but where it fits in this conversation. So I think we'll, we'll, we'll take your lead and we'll, and we'll stick it at the end of the interview and let's do start at Genesis one. Um, and I, and I, I suppose that the move to, to frame this within the image of God is an, is in some sense predictable. And I think it's the right place to start, but then you said something that surprised me and I, I wanted to, to ask you about it because I think there's something to it that I just have never seen in the Genesis creation accounts. You say that you make the argument that like immigration, migration is built into the DNA of creation. Can you, can you expand on that? Yeah. And it's tied into the image of God. I mean, because uh, the image of God in Genesis one, uh, it's tied into this idea that not we're creating this image, but part of that is to rule and, and, and subdue the earth and to fill it. And so, Part of what's kind of in the DNA of humanity is filling the earth, which means movement. And so uh, we can unpack this in the early chapters of Genesis if you'd like. But uh, this is the story of human history. It's the story of migration. Every country in the world throughout history uh, has been dealing with this. And um, even in ancient cultures, you're seeing movements of people groups or individuals, families, uh, for the same reasons as we find today, war, hunger, looking for a new life. But yeah, I, I think it's part of what is to be a human being is is to be mobile. Um, now, not every single person, right? But um, this is this is the flow, the ebb and flow of, of all of history and of every country is the movement in and out of people groups. Uh, so I think it's part of what it means to be human. And that's exactly what we then see in Genesis, that part of being human is migration. Can you can you walk us through some of those examples that you mentioned, um, maybe not just from Genesis, but from the Old Testament? Um, so who who should we you know read through this lens of migration? Which stories and you know what are those primary factors in the Old Testament that led people to migrate? Wow, that's that's a that's a plateful there. Um, I think it's interesting to see that migration begins uh, in Genesis 3 and 4. But part of the judgment of God uh, is that they're pushed out of, of Eden. And then Cain kills Abel, and he is part of his judgment is that he will be mo- he'll be moving. He'll just be a, a migrant. And so you see it very early on. And so there's a way of migration that is actually more in tune with what God would want. But what you see in Genesis 11, for instance, is humanity coming together. And it says very clearly, lest we be dispersed on the earth. And so there is a very conscious effort to stay together and not fulfill uh, the mandate. And the judgment because of that sin is dispersal. (laughs) So he forces them, uh, you know, to migrate. And then in Genesis 12, this is where some of the, the stories of faith would begin, is that Abram is called to migrate. He's in Ur of the Chaldees, and uh, he goes up to Haran, and then he comes down into Canaan. So he is called to migrate hundreds and hundreds of miles on foot and go to a land, he's told, that he does not know. He leaves his family, 
all his ideas of inheritance and, and social status. He le- leaves his culture. He leaves everything that he knows to go to a place he's never been before. And the interesting thing is, it is through this migrant that God's plan is inaugurated. And it is through this migrant that all the nations of the earth, which have been dispersed, uh, Genesis 10 and 11, will be blessed. Uh, So that's the beginning. And so what you find in these stories, and this is when I speak to immigrant congregations, Latino congregations, Hispanic congregations, that they can identify with the stories, you see. So uh, Abram will migrate to Egypt uh, in chapter 12 because they're hungry, right? And that's... So he's not only migrated into Canaan, there's food shortage, and so he will you know, go on to, uh, to Egypt. Uh, and so you have these stories, um, good and bad, right? So Abram will go uh, to Egypt. Um, he will probably hit a, an Egyptian checkpoint, and that's a whole other discussion, but um, he will tell Sarai, you know, tell them they share my, you're my sister, right? Not, not my wife. Um, and so what you see is that, that desperate people are willing to do desperate things, even to lie and to put his wife at risk. And she's willing to take that risk so that everyone can eat. Uh, but as you know, the story doesn't end well because Pharaoh finds out and he, and he you know, he kicks them out of Egypt. So you, you have these stories of, of migration that are also coupled with issues of faith. So another example in Genesis would be Joseph, who is forced to migrate, he's sold, um, you know, to a passing group of merchants and goes into Egypt and is in Potiphar's household and uh, the wife tries to seduce him and he runs away. Of course, the authorities believe her. They don't believe him. And he's the one that goes to jail. And he comes out, you see, and you have a very immigrant story where he's given a new name. It's not uncommon. Uh, he's given an Egyptian wife. He obviously speaks Egyptian. And uh, But when he has the two sons that he has with her, he gives them Israelite names. And so then his brothers will come looking for food. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the story, and there's all kinds of interesting subplots going on there, uh, he'll have them come with his father, Jacob, right? But it's even interesting even in one of those stories where they come and they're talking to him, and he understands what they're saying, but he has an interpreter there next to him, and they don't recognize him. And so if you know what Egyptians would do at at that level, he would have been shaved head and painted his face. And so, and with his, you know, particular dress and a, and a, some kind of headpiece or something, they wouldn't recognize him, but he recognizes them, but he he remembers his mother tongue. So what you have is a bilingual, um, integrated into the government. But what you have, what we would now call is family, family reunification, right? So he, he brings his family in, sets them up in Egypt. The, the spiritual thing is, at the end of the book of Genesis, when they are called to bless the nations, there is this old man Jacob blessing Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the earth. And so, you know, that's how the stories begin. And they're not only stories about migration, which there are many, but there are stories of the host culture. So that's where if you turn the page from Genesis, you're in Exodus, and there's Egypt. You know, what are they worried about? The numbers. The numbers of of foreign population, right, in their midst. And so what do they try to do? They try to, they see them as a, a, a threat, a, a political and military threat. And so they try to control the population. They try to do this by killing the little boys uh, because these would grow up, you know, and fight against them. Um, 
And then what they do is they make it harder for them to work, which makes no economic sense. They need their labor and they're building Egyptian buildings. And so, but they make it harder for them to find straw for the bricks, which makes the bricks solid. So it's a counterintuitive, counterproductive measure economically, where you're making it harder for them to work and making it potentially uh, a product that is less helpful for Egyptian buildings. That makes no economic sense at all. It's very much of an emotive issue. So again, you can see the echoes into the modern world. Um, I can tell you other stories, um, you know, Ruth. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. But you're seeing, you're seeing these stories of faith and you're seeing, uh, even in the book of Daniel, which is a fascinating story, but you're also seeing the host culture where they're jealous of him. They, they want to eliminate him, you know, the other people in the government. So what you're seeing is the dynamics between the immigrant and the host culture, even as the immigrant of God's people is also growing in faith in the process. There's so much to unpack in what you've just said. Uh, and and I want to come back to, to some of it. But I think what I want to pick up right now is that this that you're what you're saying about immigration being more, you know, when we look at the Bible about immigrant or to, to speak to immigration, we need to look at more than just the process or the mechanics of moving from one place to another. Because immigration is not just about the process of moving. It's about life in the new place. It's about the host culture. It's about immigrant experience. Um, so I guess my, my question is, what kinds of things should we expect to see in a text that's produced by immigrants in a new place? Because uh, you haven't quite said that yet. And I think that might be really interesting to talk about. And, you know, where do we see those those things in scripture, those immigrant experience things? Well, I think we don't see them because we're, we're looking for something different. So uh, what happens is, with the Old Testament, and I'm sure in the New, uh, especially kind of in evangelical circles, they're kind of looking for uh, principles for life or, uh, you know, kind of devotional nuggets. And all that stuff is, I get it, or kind of doctrinal, uh, you know, proof verses and things like this, proof texts. But what we often don't think about is uh, these texts as living texts and as lived texts. And the other piece that, that creates a barrier of actually seeing this is that even if we go to the text for the lived experience, we're going to look for the, in the text for lived experiences that we think are analogous to ours. So the parts of the experience that are not analogous to us, we miss. So even though the, the stories of Abram, who becomes Abraham, and the rest of the patriarchs, uh, who are all kind of what we would call Bedouins, uh, who are just you know, always kind of moving around, uh, because we're not thinking and looking for those things, we don't see them. And because we are technological, uh, overwhelm, overwhelmingly urban, uh, we, we miss those other pieces. Now, what's interesting, uh, Aaron, is when I talk to like Hispanic congregations, they're not used to looking at it or looking for it either. So they've had sermons that are kind of uh, systematic theology, you know, about salvation, uh, the spiritual gifts. Uh, if they have something about life, it's about you know how to do your family, uh, about working and, and being honest and, and things like this. And so for them, it's also an awakening experience to what the text actually has. 
So I think part of the issue, while we don't see it, is that we're not even looking for it. And my experience has been, even personally, let alone as I speak, is the more I look for it, the more I see. Can I do the Daniel story? Would that be an interesting Oh, absolutely. One? Okay. Yeah. I mean, so I remember as a new Christian, I came to faith in college, you know, so I would hear about Daniel. Uh, for, sometimes, for some uh, teaching and sermons, it was about kind of the eschatological chart kind of idea. So, of course, they're going to miss all of this because it's just about looking for the future and how it's all going to turn out. Um, but the other one you'd hear was that Daniel, what a man of faith, and, you know, these young guys, you know, that's so great. But if you step back for a second and look at that story, it's a very troubling story in chapter one. I mean, they've been taken out of their homeland. Um, they've, they've walked for hundreds of miles to get there. But the thing is, is that Babylon has invaded their country, and they're going to see this from afar. Because Babylon's actually been there a couple of times, but uh, they'll see the final invasion from afar, which would have destroyed their country, kill their families and their friends. These were well-to-do, uh, well-heeled, well-educated young men. So they had lost their social status. They lost everything that they had back home, and all their family and all their friends. And now they were actually being trained to serve the empire that had destroyed everything they knew. They gave them new names, and the names connected to Babylonian gods. So even the new names were blasphemous to them. And um, now they're supposed to work for the empire. You know what kind of emotions were, were in their minds? Was it was it hate? Was it humiliation? Was it frustration? Uh, was it anger? You see, which would be kind of the natural things. And then what you find among minority groups, not only immigrant groups, is you have to find the spaces for negotiation. So. Uh, you have these hidden transcripts that are going on and, and, and the spaces they can find. So they can't negotiate the curriculum. That's established. They can't uh, negotiate what they're supposed to do. That's been told to them. The only space that they have left is their food, and they negotiate that. Now, whenever I've heard teaching on it, they just say, oh, you know, they don't even, you know, they may mention it in passing, but what they are doing is putting a stake in the ground. Because food is a cultural marker, as we all know, and you would know now in the UK, you're eating different things that you did in this country. Um, so that's the only thing that they can negotiate, is their food. And it'd be successful at it. And so um, what they were saying, because their food was connected to their faith, was that you may take away our names, you've destroyed our country, you've taken everything that we have, but we're still Jews. That's what they're saying. We're still Jews. Um, and they're willing to die for their faith. And they're not going to give up their culture, even though now they're going to be bilingual and they're the smartest in the whole group, which is not an uncommon experience where you see the immigrant kids, you know, doing wonderfully well, uh, which triggers the jealousy that will come later in the book. But so you see Daniel and all the, all those tensions. And so when I, I'll give you an example. When I'm with Latino congregations and I'm doing Daniel chapter one, one of the things I tell them is we have to tell our children that we're just as good as the majority culture. We're just as smart as they are, if not better. We don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to negotiate everything away. You see, we can be Latinos. 
So let's, um, I, I want to ask, you, you write something rather provocative in your, in your chapter on hospitality. And I think it's a really important challenge, but I think it's worth reading out and, um, I'm going to, yeah, I'll read it. Uh, Clinging to a chosen lifestyle and schedule, defining the permitted parameters of a neighborhood and monopolizing time just for oneself and one's family so that the stranger, any stranger is excluded, might be rebellion against God. And I thought that was what was so provocative about might be rebellion against God. What in the biblical text leads you to think that the failure to offer hospitality or live lives, you know, that are characterized and marked by hospitality um, leads you to that challenging conclusion. I think uh, a lack of hospitality, and we all fall victim to this, um, is just selfishness. I mean, we need to have proper boundaries. And so I'm not talking about kind of crazy, anyone who comes, you know, come in and all that. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, Yesterday, my wife and I, took a student out for coffee and there was a family connection through marriage and and we got to know her a little bit. And so when we were done and we were driving her back to her dorm, I said, look, we're family and we live less than a mile from the college. Please feel free to come over and um, have coffee or a meal, you know, this kind of stuff. And it's interesting because it's not only hospitality of the host, but sometimes in the American culture, uh, people don't even want to, engage and take you up on the offer. I mean, so that's an interesting, interesting thing. But um, on the neighborhood, I, I think, and, you know, I fall, fall victim or, or, you know, slave to this too. We're so busy in the U.S. Um, and you've got, even, even how the structures work, right? So to get into our garage or garage, you would say in, in the U.K., it's an electric thing, right? So I can sit in my car and push a button. The garage goes up, and I go inside. I push a button, and I'm I'm hermetically sealed in this building. And I mean, so everything is structured, you see. Uh, and this culture in the U.S. is very uh, egocentric, right? Very hedonistic, and so everything in the culture is almost working against biblical hospitality, which should be sacrificial. And you see this in the Old Testament, and then as you would know in the New Testament. Being hospitable is 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 like a, a prerequisite to be a church leader, for goodness sakes. I mean, so um, I, I think it's it's a skill and it's a virtue that we all need to learn. But certain cultures are more are more are prone to do this because it's part of their part of their uh, of their ethos. And so you'll see more hospitable cultural kind of things. Um, in Latin America, for instance. And one of the reasons why in Latin America, besides just the cultural being friendly and talking to people and sitting around a meal for hours just talking, uh, is is the role of extended family. So the very fact that you're getting together with families all the time um, kind of pushes you out of your kind of nuclear family bubble. Uh, we're in the U.S. Um, you don't have that extended family feel very often. And because the country is so spread out, you know, you might have, you have family in Minneapolis, right? Mm-hmm. And you're in Oxford. Okay, how do you be hospitable there? Right? You see? <laughs> so, uh, oh, we'll go and we'll see the grandparents once a year or something. Uh, so even so, it's the distance in this country. It's the culture in this country. Don't really facilitate. You've got to really work at it. 
And it's a constant reminder for me uh, of the need to do this. But I think it's a demand, not only for the foreigner, but for friends and family and the family of God, that we need to be hospitable. The thing with the foreigner is that, um, and I would see this in in the Latino church, the church becomes the alternative to the extended family. So on a Sunday, which is when extended families get together in Latin America, uh, what you'll have after a service is, is a meal or that kind of thing going on. And, and so the church is being hospitable because it has to culturally, and it's fulfilling a cultural need that back home only families would fulfill in France. Um, so it's it's a, it's a multi-layered kind of processing, um, but it's a biblical demand. And so that's why I say what I say. And I'm pointing the finger at myself as well as I write that. Truth be told. And I think I find it challenging. Um, I found it challenging when I've not been an immigrant and I find it challenging when I am an immigrant. Uh, it's hard for immigrants to offer hospitality to the host country. Um, that that dynamic is has been challenging. And we have found, um, we've been immigrants a few times now and now we're more permanent immigrants this time around, not in doctoral studies. Um, and it, it's interesting how much faster you make friends with other immigrants because they need that exactly what you're saying. They need that social network where um, when you make friends with, you know, people who are not immigrants, it takes a lot longer because they have those connections already. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, we were in Denver and we came up here to Wheaton area. Um, People have their lives already established. Making friends is hard. They're friendly, but they're not open. Right. Um, It would be, you you know, but I speak the language, I look Anglo, all this kind of stuff. If I wasn't those things, it would be even harder. So when I have Latino students in a doctoral program or the master's program, I make an effort to speak to them in Spanish, even after class in the hallways, have them in our home. Um, and what happens too, uh, and you'd, you'd appreciate this, Aaron, when you do invite the host culture into your home and you serve them your food, you're watching them. Right? You're watching them, all right? Are they going to like? Are they going to like this, right? Uh, you're, you know, um, are they going to? I remember. Here's a funny story. It's a little sidelight. So we were in Sheffield, and so um, the church, the women's group, was going to have like a. We have all these desserts. So we're going to have this uh, women's conference or whatever it was, and everyone bring their desserts. And so my wife, oh, what's the American thing, right? So she, she. Um, she has a friend. We have a, had a friend uh, who was at, at Cambridge, and there's a, a military base there, uh, Air Force Base, the U.S. So she went to the PX, got you know into the PX, and bought Oreo cookies. And so you know she brings the platter of Oreo cookies. Like this was oh this is the American thing, I, you know. And so at the end of the time, like that's the only thing that no one had touched. <laughs> and so my wife was just like crushed. Oh no. And that's so she awful. she asked one of her friends, What? You know, I, I brought this, right? And and she said in her British accent, Well, a black biscuit. You know, who would eat something like that? You know. Uh, <laughs> but but there it is, right? You you kind of lay yourself yep. out. You lay yourself yep. out, and then if yep. it doesn't go well, 
Right. So, uh, and, it, and, and in that moment, you don't feel like they don't like my food. What you feel like is they don't like my culture. They don't like me. They exactly. don't, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a crushing it is. feeling because there's this, there's this link between hospitality and identity. And I think to come back to the book a little bit, you, you pick that up on your, in your chapter on hospitality and, and memory more specifically, but identity. So, um, I, I, can you talk about the connection between hospitality and memory in the Old Testament um, in a bit more detail? And I think it's safe to say that a lot of Christians don't have the experience of being an immigrant. So how can they begin to enter into this, you know, what immigrants experience kind of innately as part of the immigrant experience? How do they enter into this link between hospitality and identity? Or how do they learn to recognize it? Well, you're asking me all these Complex questions, Aaron. Um, it's a complex topic. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> so hospitality and memory, I think it can work at a couple of levels. Uh, one of the things, when one shares one's life and culture and food, it's actually reinforcing your memories of who you are, right? Um, how you celebrate birthdays, how you celebrate Christmas. What is a what is a Sunday dinner, right? Uh, what's a good breakfast, right? Um, and so I think part of it is just the hospitality. It, as you share yourself, you're actually reinforcing yourself, if I can put it that way. And then as you do the memory piece, um, it's also your children, right? Because what will they remember? And one of the, the losses of, of being an immigrant is the children, if we're brutally honest, can never be what we are or were. And so there will be some kind of loss, but can we give them the memories that will live on, you see? Uh, and part of that is having others outside our home and sharing it with others so it becomes part of what is natural to them as well. Uh, we've had this conversation with our two sons. Uh, they remember times when we would have people in our home and the food we would offer and all these kinds of things that they still go back to. Uh, the idea, for instance, of having someone in our home, and I was, we were talking to one of our sons uh, just the other day, and he was talking about, you know, that reminded me, he said, of how we would just sit around a table and talk for hours. You see? So what you're seeing is the memory is not only for me as the father and the, you know, it's also for my children. And then it becomes a, a, a kind of a corporate memory if you're doing it as a church or doing it as a people group. So the, the other thing that, and this is where the vulnerable... And do you think we see that in, in, I mean, I feel like I see that in then not just the commands to hospitality because you were foreigners, remember that you were foreigners, but actually in the practice like, would it be appropriate, and this is not my area, so please stop me if it's not, but would it be appropriate then to view even, like, Israelite ritual through this lens of hospitality and memory? So, like, Sukkot becomes about hospitality and memory in some sense. Yeah, in fact, I was going to get to that. And, and, and I oh, think, sorry. No, 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 it's great. I mean, so it's a nice segue. But uh, I was thinking of, of rituals, you see, where there are very Israelite rituals, but they are explicitly told to invite the foreigner into that. So what you're doing is you're inviting the foreigner into your own memory, <laughs> you see, and you're inviting them into your own space. 
And so that's where the hospitality is not only something internal and corporate kind of inward looking, it can also be an invitation for others to come and participate uh, in, in the ritual and participate in the memory. And because those of us who are of faith want them to become part of that collective memory, which has not been theirs, but now will be. And so you can see this in the Christian faith, uh, not only in terms of personal hospitality among Christians and with non-Christians, but even the Lord's table, right? You're inviting them to become part of a memory, to remember the death. You see. So you're inviting others to become part of a bigger memory and to take it as their own. And if their memory expands, their identity will begin to expand and their identity will begin to change. So I think all those dynamics are going on you know, at personal levels, as we all do, but also I think it's a very intentional. Now, how much was self-conscious? I, I don't know. I mean, it's easy for us to kind of look at the text and see all these things in the text, and it looks very intentional. But one thing is it being intentional. Another thing is actually being uh, in the consciousness of the people as they do it. And th those aren't necessarily the same thing. But I, I, I think that's uh, actually very crucial. And the thing, if, if we invite others into our memory the hospitality, it solidifies our memory as something valid, you see. And this could be personal family stuff as well as faith stuff as well. Hmm. That gives me lots to think about. Um, okay, I've got a couple of, of questions. I want to I get to the New Testament, but I have to ask this question about Ruth because I, I really enjoyed your, your discussion of Ruth and you've hinted at it a few times. So it's kind of a big pivot here. But, um, but you say... Um, you said in the interview that Ruth's experience as an immigrant woman, um, you know, her, her gender impacts her experience as an immigrant, which isn't, yeah, which isn't something you pick. I mean, you pick up it a little, a little bit in the book, but I wonder, um, I wonder if it changes our understanding of Ruth as an immigrant, uh, if we attend, you know, to her gender more intentionally alongside her, her ethnicity. Um, what do you, how, how do those two things intersect? Where do we see that in Ruth? Yeah, I think it's, it's fundamental, actually. Uh, even, for instance, when Naomi says, you know, stay behind, and she says, no, I'm going to go with you. Well, you know, the question is, why doesn't she want to stay behind? Uh, you know, she'd been married and was childless, uh, and she'd been married to a foreigner. You know, she'd married an immigrant. I mean, so in, in her Moabite culture, being childless and, and a widow of a foreigner, could she even have a new life? Could she even find another spouse because of, of, of that cultural baggage? And then when she, as a woman, right? And so then when she, when she goes um, to Bethlehem uh, with Naomi, which is an interesting discussion about the mother-in-law, daughter-in-law dynamic there, which is another discussion. Well, you know, I could say that one. Um, it's, it's very interesting, uh, and you've been through this too, the relationship between daughter-in-law and mother-in-law. I mean, that's a unique kind of dynamic. And when she spills her heart out and just says, I'll, you know, I'll go with you, I'll die with you, your people, my people, Naomi doesn't say a word. And then when they arrive in Bethlehem, you know, she's not even mentioned. It's like Naomi has totally ignored her because she's so focused on, you know, how she's lost everything and God has left me empty and all this stuff. I mean, so is there this kind of, woman dynamic going on there. And then when you get into chapter two, um, you know, the specific female thing is is the warning, right? 
because Boaz says you need to be careful about working around those men. And Naomi will tell her the same thing when she goes back to the home, right? You need to be careful as a woman, uh, as a as a, a solitary woman, because you know she's the Moabite. You know she's she's in a sense more vulnerable, and people have basically ignored her. I mean, no, they don't even know her name. They just call her the Moabite. You know she's been working all day, right? Hasn't taken a rest. It, they don't know her name. Uh, they know she's connected to Naomi somehow. But the 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 danger is the danger of her being a woman in that environment. So then you go to chapter three, and that whole complicated, that's you know very debated scene on the threshing floor. That could go desperately wrong, because she's a woman. Let's say something happens. Let's say Boaz doesn't respond well, and he exposes her as you know trying to seduce him, or let's say someone walks by and, and sees this thing going on. I mean, she is risking everything as a woman. And then you get into chapter 4, and when the elders are praising her, they're praising her as one of the great women of Israel's past. So it's the woman connection there, what they're recognizing. And then at the end of the story, before the genealogy, it's the women of the town with Naomi. Ruth isn't isn't there, apparently. And the women of the town turn to the mother-in-law, and say, this little boy is going to take care of you when you get old. And you know, this woman loves you more than seven sons. You see, and then Naomi takes the child. And maybe that's when she totally, fully accepts her daughter-in-law as well. So what you're seeing is these women dynamics, the vulnerability, the social stigmas, the and as an immigrant woman, doing this as a foreigner. So one thing is having to go through this and you're an Israelite woman. Another thing is going through this, and you're a foreign woman. So you're negotiating the spaces that you are learning as you go. You see? You don't, you don't have the script written for you, except maybe you had discussions about this. But you, it's not a lived experience. The, the script is not your script. And so she's having to learn how to navigate this foreign world as a foreigner and as a foreign woman with all the, the red flags and dangers that could pop up. And if she actually did any of those things wrong, the pay that, you know, the payment, so to speak, would, would be, I would assume, would be more severe because she's a foreigner. And there was this thing between Israelites and Moabites anyway. I mean, so she would have she would have kind of fulfilled all the negative stereotypes. I mean, so there's a lot going on there uh, as a woman that, that people don't, don't sometimes notice. Yeah, I mean, and as, and as I was kind of reflecting on, again on your book, um, especially since we're recording this episode just a few days after this the tragic spa shootings in Atlanta that were specifically tar- targeted at, you know, Asian women, six of the women who were killed were immigrants. It just made me think what a profound theological resource we have in the book of Ruth um, to, to be able to I shed light on some of these intersectional dynamics of immigration, of racism, of misogyny. Um, I, I just think, I, I wonder if there's not another way of reading Ruth where, I think you're right. You know, when if if she were to do, have done anything wrong, it could have gone very differently. But perhaps if we read Ruth alongside this mandate for hospitality, could we read it also as a critique of, you know, in oh, some very, sense? Yeah, very yeah. much so. And and I I think, you know, something that would go with that is just one of the things that that the, the older I get, um, 
and the more I listen, I can always learn. Women have this innate resilience to them uh, that is amazing. You know, I watch like my wife as the mother and now as a grandmother, and, and watching the resilience of, of and you know, women family members and, and William a uh, woman colleagues and women students, there is something womanly. I don't know what the proper adjective would be about the resilience of, of the female gender. And maybe it has to be that way because of childbirth and child raising and the complexity of all of this and living in a world and all this, a world dominated by men. There's a resilience there. And so Ruth, to me, is, is, is an, an amazing example of female resilience and creativity and uh, inner strength and kind of boldness to do what she does. Uh, I think that would need to be taught as well. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think I think that's a helpful picture of, of Ruth, who sometimes I think we treat her a bit too meekly. She's a she's a brave lady. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and I think the same thing of Esther. Um, just the boldness of of Esther is is kind of and and the and again this negotiation that has to happen. Uh, is such an important dynamic of that. And she does it um, over food. It's always at banquet. Over fu- That's right. That's and so, right. so, you know, the old <laughs> saying, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. I mean, you're seeing it in Esther, right? <laughs> give give the guy some food, right? And he'll come, right? So uh, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, and, it, you know, it seems like it's a, I mean, it's an immigrant survival skill. Yeah. In some sense. It, you know, I think post-colonial criticism gets that really, that, that dynamic is so important in that text. And I think sometimes when, you know, scholars who haven't had to negotiate those things, read those texts, they miss them. But it's so important. And you see these stories of these immigrant women who are working two and three jobs and raising their kids. And, you know, it's amazing. It's just, they're, they're just resilient. And the dangers they have to go through, you know, it's just, it's just crazy. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. So let's jump into the New Testament. I know we've spent the majority of the time talking about the Old Testament because you're an Old Testament scholar, and I think rightly so. Um, but you make the case, uh, perhaps it's controversial in a few, in some circles, that Jesus is a refugee. So why do you think it's important for us to see Jesus as a refugee? Well, it depends on your audience. Uh, I think if, if, if one can show that Jesus is fleeing, right, danger, um, that's what refugees do, right? I mean, so I think it opens up a whole new category of how to process Jesus. But also, if you're an immigrant, uh, there's an issue there as well, you see, because now the, the, the Savior in whom you believe, at some level, at some age, uh, had that experience. So there's a way of connecting with the Christian faith that can be unique uh, to, to refugees and, and foreigners in general. So I think that's why it's important. Um, you know, I, I, I've had discussions about this with people, but I think it's pretty clear. I mean, they're, they're, they're running away to save their lives, and they go to Egypt. And they, you know, we don't know, but they, you would know this more than I would. I would assume they went to Alexandria because there was a large Jewish community there. Um, you know, and so they were maybe in a Jewish enclave, right? That would be very typical uh, but before they go back, right? But it was part of his lived experience. And there has to be a reason it's in the text and in his life. 
I think if Jesus is going to be the savior to the world, he has to kind of get out there a little bit. I mean, he doesn't just stay in Palestine for his whole life. He goes into Egypt, even as a boy uh, or a child. Uh, so th there may be some of that going on, Aaron. I don't know. But I, at least there's a connection on the refugee experience. Yeah, I think I think the, the question people have is, you know, if he's fleeing Roman Palestine for Roman Egypt, is he really a refugee, you know, in the modern sense of the world word? I think, you know, that's, I think that's kind of splitting hairs personally, but yeah, well, um, yeah. and I, as you would know, Egypt was a different jurisdiction, yeah, right? And, and so, I mean, even it was part of the Roman Empire, yes, technically, but it was differently governed, different jurisdiction, different power, yeah. And so, they're specifically fleeing Herod and his jurisdiction, and they only come back when he's dead, right? So. Yeah, so it is jurisdictional. Well, and then you have a whole, you know, you have a segment of New Testament scholars that don't think that, you know, Jesus might might not have actually done that. It's a literary device in Matthew. But then I think it raises the question, why is, why is Matthew interested in this? Why is, you know, and I think precisely to make the point that Jesus identifies with the, you know, the people that God delivered from Egypt. So there's, it's still an immigration story, even if it's just a theological point. But and, you, and you would know this in, in Matthew, that the early history of, of Israel is mimicked in the way Matthew is structured. I mean, so it's very much, and, and yeah, so even if you want to say, oh, it never really happened or whatever, it, it's still a theological reality in that text itself. So you, you can't get around it. Uh, it's there for a reason. Yeah, I think, I think. Even if you want to make that, I don't. I don't want to make that argument. I think Matthew is picking up a historical detail, um, but even if you want to make that argument, there's still a theological point there about immigration that I think we need to hear. Um, and, and actually, you go on to make a, a bigger theological point on immigration that you might. We might even begin to think of the incarnation as d divine migration. That's your term. So, um, where do you see this divine migration in the New Testament? And I guess, what does it add to our Christology to think about Jesus um, in terms of divine migration? Well, the divine migration is really not my idea. Actually, uh, it's, 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 where I've read it uh, mostly is with two Roman Catholic scholars, um, uh, one at Georgetown and one at Notre Dame. And they'll talk about a migrant God, you see. So uh, I think the idea of of the second person of the Trinity actually becoming flesh and making himself vulnerable and going into a land. And it's interesting, as you know from John chapter 1, and, and even his own rejected him, you see. I mean, so you get this interesting interplay, and then his whole life, in a sense, is lived as an outsider. Uh, so there is this not only kind of the divine, supernatural, you know, heaven-to-earth kind of migration, if we want to call it that. His whole life is lived, in a sense, as as a foreigner in his own land. Um, they reject him because of where he's from. Uh, they reject him because of what he believes. He lives a migrant life. Uh, he's always kind of on the road as an adult. Um, so you're, you're seeing this kind of migrant life of the Savior uh, and then his openness to other cultures, especially the Samaritans, which is another discussion. So I, I think what you have is this whole idea, especially if he tells his disciples to go into all the earth, which is kind of echoing the Genesis 12 narrative, I think. You're seeing that the idea of God reaching out to humanity, not only through his disciples, but through his very person. And then what you'll have is the Spirit will come and 
and it, I don't think I get into this in the book, uh, and inhabit believers all around the world. I mean, so there's this sense where God is now, you know, uh, involved himself inside humans all over the world. I mean, so there's this interesting thing in the, and I think the, the missionary um, strategies of the book of Acts are very migrant oriented. Uh, the whole diaspora missiology you see going on in the book of Acts. And then when you get to Revelation, you know, John's on Patmos, all right? So he's forced migrant somewhere else. Um, and the vision of, of the throne of God and all these different people from different cultures and races and tongues and nationalities. I mean, so it's very much part of the whole um, divine picture. And if God wasn't, you see, committed like this and actually incarnated like this, uh, it would make it harder to even think of a global church and the body of Christ being as international as it is. The, the very fact that God has done this makes the concept of the body of Christ international, intercultural, a possibility. So let's circle back then to Romans 13. And can you tell us then, in this framework on immigration that you're arguing goes from the first page of the Bible to the last page, uh, what do you think Romans 13 contributes to the conversation, if anything, on immigration? Well, I think, again, it's the starting point. Uh, I would begin reading Romans 13 and Romans 12. Because Romans 12 says... Don't be shaped and molded into the ways of the world, but renew your minds. See, so you can discover what the the proper will of God is. And I think what's happened is that uh, people have been shaped and molded by the ideology of their place. So this can be left or right, actually. Um, and so the very thing that God says not to do, we've, it's actually happened. So often when I've heard sermons on Romans 12, it's always about, you know, sex and drugs or something. Don't be molded into, you know, this kind of stuff. And that's true. Agreed. But uh, I think the more insidious, and you can see this in the Old and the New Testament and throughout church history, is how the church and the people of God have been shaped and molded by the ideologies of their age. And all the, the things that it brings, and it creates a false god. You know, we, we, we create a god that mimics and reflects our ideology, which is idolatry. Um, and so when you go into Gen, uh, Romans chapter 12, you know, it says, don't be molded and shaped by the world. And, and then it'll go on to talk about spiritual gifts, which is going to be of service. And then he says, if, you're, if your enemy is hungry, you give them something to eat. If your enemy is thirsty, you give them something to drink. So now, if you're going to even see immigrants as enemies, we're beyond excuse. You see, we, we are to feed and to give them water to drink. And so that's kind of the Christian perspective moving into Romans 13. If you begin Romans 13 with a certain set of ideological commitments that you're even not aware of, that'll skew how you read all of this. So if you come out of Genesis, uh, I don't know, I keep saying Genesis. If you come out of Romans chapter 12, you're very well aware that what, what Paul is, is putting before us is very countercultural, counter-ideological, especially in his time with the empire. And so now you move into Romans 13. 
And now you realize, okay, that's the government. That's not me. So how do I respond to a foreign power that sits over me? That's a different kind of discussion. Instead of embracing that higher authority as God-given and true, you understand, coming out of chapter 12, that this is a different alien thing. If we understand that, then you're willing to say to yourself, oh, well, maybe those laws aren't good laws. And in the UK and in the US, we have the luxury of being able to change laws that we don't like. And we do this all the time. That's why we have elections and we do this with school boards. We do this with you know, the mayor. We do this with you know, counties in the UK and the states over here. Uh, we're changing laws all the time when we, know when we know that they're bad or inefficient or outdated. Now, the problem comes if people are, are so committed to their ideology, the assumption is that the law is good. That's the problem. And so what they're asking you to do is to obey this law without ever asking if it's a good law or a bad law. And it doesn't say obey the law. It says submit, as you would know. And so for me, that's a different kind of nuance. On the one hand, if I am submitting, I, submitting to something, I am willing to say that it is wrong and that I'm willing to accept what happens if I know that it's wrong and I, and I act accordingly. So I think you've changed the whole kind of conversation. And then when you put that against this whole spectrum of Scripture on welcoming the stranger, you've got to see that the reigning ideology has got problems. Uh, because it is actually, in many ways, in different, in different ways, depending on your country. I just read uh, day before yesterday that Japan now is starting to tighten its immigration policies. So this is a global thing. It's not just the U.S. or the U.K. Um, so I think if, if you understand the, the, the scriptural breadth on this thing, if you understand the Romans 12 thing on this thing, you're going to just process Romans 13 very differently. I think that's really helpful. And I think it's worth pointing out that one of the ways that Paul commands them to not be conformed to the pattern of this age is to practice hospitality. Oh, very good. Yeah, great. That's very good. And I think, um, and I, now that you're, you're talking about that, I wonder if we read Romans 13 um, within this discourse of, you know, ethical instruction at the end of Romans um, as kind of a way of talking about two clashing communities, one of whom who are immigrants, you know, and um, perhaps some native Romans, uh, Romans, you know, kind of a crossroads, but Jews and Gentiles. I wonder if this submission to government in Romans 13 is a way of um, kind of smoothing over tensions with, <laughs> with the Roman government. There's a concession, you know, there's a, there's a conciliatory posture there, um, because the immigrant population, the Jewish population, is actually quite vulnerable within Rome. And so if the Gentiles are, you know, not submitting to government, if they're refusing to pay taxes, if they're, you know, the, the things that Paul actually mentions, um, yeah, I think perhaps that dovetails, you know, quite nicely into his discussion of, again, food in Romans 14 and Romans 15. Yeah, and I think uh, you're getting actually to to the kind of thing that happens, right? So you know, let's say pay taxes. So I'm talking to an undocumented immigrant, one of my friends in, back in Denver, 
he owns a, a carpet cleaning business, undocumented. And uh, I said, do you pay taxes? He says, I do pay taxes. And I said, well, how do you do that? He says, well, uh, the IRS, which is in this country, I don't know what they, what's the, the equivalent in Britain? I can't remember. There's the HMRC. Whatever that means. I don't know what that stands for. <laughs> it must be Her Majesty's something or other. Something. Yeah. It is. But yeah. Okay. So, but <laughs> anyway. He, but he says the IRS in this country, the tax people, they give you a tax number, even if you are undocumented. And so he pays his taxes. You see, so part of the reason is so that, you know, if there is some change in the government uh, laws here, that he can be recognized as one who has been constructive and, and, and contributing. So there, so even the tax piece is an interesting, interesting discussion if you're a foreigner and an immigrant, because that's actually part of the discussion you have to, you have, to have. Uh, and then I think too, uh, I'll throw this in, but you know when you get to First Peter, which is about kind of a diaspora church, depending on how you understand it, but I take it kind of a literal way, not only spiritually. You know, where it says that all of us as Christians are foreigners and strangers. You see, So being different and being a foreigner, in quotes, should be what marks Christian existence. We are different, and people don't like that. In fact, First Peter assumes that they won't, right? That they're going to mock you and think you're strange. And, and if you're attacked, you know, because you're different, be ready to give an answer, right? Submit, uh, you know, and, 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 and be silent as the... the you know, the Savior was. I mean, so there is the expectation that being different as a quote-unquote immigrant you know, on this earth is going to bring backlash. And uh, as each of the countries that we have lived in, I'm in the U.S. and you're in the U.K., become increasingly post-Christian and in some ways anti-Christian, uh, that's going to be part of our reality, you see. And so maybe we'll begin reading Romans 13 and First Peter a bit differently than a, a more comfortable cultural Christianity. My final question. Yep. What's your hope for this book? Well, uh, I wrote the first book, and then this one kind of comes out of it. Uh, to be perfectly honest, was to lay out the Bible. I didn't have any expectations when I wrote it. I was just like, someone needs to say something, and I don't know what's going to happen. So I didn't expect 13 or 14 years of traveling and speaking. I did um, but the, the idea was to write something as ironically as possible so that people would actually read it, uh, try to include the, the immigrant perspective as well so that it would be helpful to immigrants, but just to begin to inform the church and to get the church beyond the politics of it. Because what they need to do is get underneath the politics of it. They need to begin to build a different foundation. And even to be more direct in this country, uh, hopefully to change some voting patterns on this issue. Um, and it's interesting, as I've traveled and spoken on this and written on this over the last number of years, uh, I see more and more openness to this idea. Once you start showing people uh, the Bible uh, on this, there's not much they can say. You know, they may have a verse or two, you know, like the Romans 13 or something, but they don't really have much of a thing they can say. And what I've experienced is that I've been asked to speak in every kind of denomination in this country that you can think of. And the denomination, you know, from the left 
kind of mainline, we call it in this country, all the way to very conservative evangelicals. And they're all interested in the Bible, what the Bible has to say. Uh, and so that's been something I did not expect. Um, so I've been with Catholic groups, uh, been with mainline, what we call mainline, more liberal groups in this country, and the evangelical, and I don't know how many of the denominations I've been in. Uh, so it's also expanded my view of the church, right? Because I've seen these well-meaning Christians from all these different traditions asking about the same thing. And I think what you've really achieved, at least for me, is to put um, to put a human face on these immigrant stories, to put to, to kind of breathe life into them, and to say we see these patterns. There's nothing there's nothing surprising um, in scripture, uh, and there's nothing surprising about immigration, perhaps. Uh, you know, in, in contemporary context. So I, I think if nothing else, I found that really helpful. And I know it will change how I read certain texts, um, especially in the Old Testament. Um, so thank you for that. And thanks again to all of our OnScript listeners uh, who, have joining us, who, who are joining us. And we've been speaking with uh, Danny Carroll on his book, The Bible and Borders, Hearing God's Word on Immigration, published by Brazos Press. Thanks so much for joining us, Danny. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a privilege for me. Good to, good to be with you, Aaron. Thanks. And until next time, this is Aaron Heim, uh, an American immigrant from Oxford, <laughs> signing out. <laughs> you have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.